Turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we finish this powerful chapter on the definition of agape love. And if we are there, it starts in verse 8 as Paul finishes his writing on this. He says here, uh, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, and we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and the challenges that you have been bringing forth in our lives concerning um, what it means to embrace a father who's full of love for us. And so we pray that you would open your word and teach us more about what it means for us to be full of your love toward one another. And so, Father, we thank you for this. And we thank you, Lord, that you are here in our midst. We thank you that you are working in our hearts through the power of your spirit. We thank you that you've drawn us into a saving relationship with your son, Jesus. And we just thank you that you've changed us forever because of it. And so, Father, we give you this time, and we pray this for your honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we are. We're going uh, to finish this chapter out um, we're going to finish the chapter, chapter 13 today, uh, probably a couple weeks in chapter 14 and dealing with uh, gifts of prophecy and tongues and how the best way to handle that. And then we're going to be in chapter 15, which deals with the resurrection for several Sundays. I'd like to kind of park there for a little bit too, considering it gives us information about what we're in store for when we finally get out of here. So that's sort of... <laughs> when we finally get out of here. So that's sort of uh, where we're going to go within the next month or so. Um, but what we've done in the last couple weeks, this is our fourth sermon out of chapter 13. And what we've done is concentrate on agape love. Um, we define some of those loves that come from the Greek, a storge love, which is a family love, a phileo love, which is a friendship love. And, uh, but the one that's mentioned the most, if not all the time, is agape love in the scriptures. And so the Lord wrote chapter 13 to give us an understanding of what that kind of love is. Uh, it, the word itself turns people off in a lot of ways, I think. It just kind of rolled their eyes, you know, because love is just, the word is thrown out there in so many different ways. Uh, that's something I believe that if we want to have healthy marriages and healthy churches and healthy relationships, we should read this chapter 13, if not memorize it and make it a part of our lives in order to allow this to dictate how we approach one another because I believe that um, we really need a lot of help in this area. And that's why the Lord puts time into it because our natural tendency is not to act in the way that God describes agape love. And so that's just our sin nature. And so he wants us to understand how we are to approach one another, which requires obviously a decision, but also a dying to self. And so that's why I wanted to spend some time in this chapter concerning that and concerning what God wants us to do. And so this, 
this theme, so to speak, for these last number of verses is that God, uh, God's love never fails, or it shouldn't fail. Uh, his will never fail, ours will. And that's the theme of this last section. And really when it says that, it means, and I'm going to open that up a little bit, it really means that God's agape love is permanent. Uh, and we're not used to anything that's permanent. Uh, the thing with our Lord is that his love toward us is something that will never go away. And if anything, I think for our own spiritual well-being, if we would understand how much God loves us, it would drastically change our approach to him. And it would drastically change how we think of one another as well as ourselves. Because we're also prone to beat ourselves up in so many different ways. And so the Lord wants us to understand his love so that we won't do that. His love is an enduring love, is what it is. And so we're going to jump into it as the Lord tries to open us up to what it means along these lines. And I'll just read verse 8 once again uh, concerning those things. He said, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And so I just want to read point one in the outline here. And then uh, I'm going to read a little bit out of 1 John again. Or some really, You know what's interesting with the, um, with the Apostle uh, John is uh, one who was close to Christ. It was probably one of his best friends. Um, wow, what, what an interesting relationship they had. One um, who was very, he seems like, now they all did, but he seems like one of those guys that just really drank in deeply um, the character of Christ. And here, he's in his 90s and he's writing these books. And what do you think he emphasizes most is love. And so this is something that Jesus taught him. Um, this is something he saw in Christ, obviously because Jesus is love. And it's something that he held on to all those years. You think about seeing the loss of his dear brothers to martyrdom, seeing Jerusalem destroyed in 70 AD, seeing the church already starting to embrace false teaching, um, seeing things change radically in just 60 years or 50 years. And here he is, and he's all alone. He's the last one. And he's, and he's not only that, he's off on some island somewhere, which I believe in Patmos is where he probably wrote this too, as well as the book of Revelation. And he's all alone, and he's sitting there, and he's contemplating, and the Spirit's moving powerfully. And he's got such an understanding of the church and such an understanding of what Christ did on the cross and, and an understanding that really what matters most, like Paul is saying, is that love never fails. And so that's something important to him because everything else has failed, right? I mean, his body's growing old. He's a man in his 90s. He knows he doesn't have much time left. Everything else is gone. Um, everything that he held dear, um, close friends, family, everything else, but he realizes that what has remained and what he knows dear to him is that his life is totally absorbed into the love of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's love for him. And so you see that. So he's obviously looking forward to going home, but this is where this man was. And so when we read these words, they should resonate with us. So I'm going to read point one, and I'm going to read a little bit. Oh, I didn't put it in notes, but a little bit out of First John, you can... Kind of just to remind us, but it says agape love is the motivation behind Christ's sacrifice for us. And we think about that. And, and I know Bob never likes me to say anything about what he does. But listen, you get, you get, a, you get some people down on and, and 
an independent hall. And, and their, their desire is to spread the gospel. And you know something? It, it's just vessels allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through in powerful ways. We pray for fruit from that to see how active God is. And really, when God is active and drawing, what he's doing is being very active in expressing his love to those in desperate need of a savior. And that's really what, it, that's really what it's all about. And that's what he's doing. And so, it's a, so that's motivation is Christ's sacrifice. Its presence was absolutely necessary for our salvation and guaranteed entrance into heaven through faith. It will always determine God's approach toward his children. And we must remember that. Uh, I, I find that hard sometimes, we all do, but that God would really love me, you know. Uh, I'm not, I ain't feeling very lovable today, but yet his love is constant. And, and so it, it will always determine his approach toward his children because his agape love will never fail us. And so this is another thing too, when we read the scriptures, it's a matter of do you want to believe the truths of the word or not? I mean, are they valid or not? And it's a matter of making a choice and saying, you know, Lord, what you say is true, I'll hold on to that. In the midst of my insecurity, in the midst of whatever I'm feeling, in the midst of my depression, or whatever it might be, in the midst of the craziness of what I might be living in, I know one thing is for sure, that your love is not going to fail me. And praise God for that, because that's obviously what I need. And I have here another thing, too, and this is, we'll get into this. It takes away our fear of condemnation and punishment, and will remain an inseparable part of our relationship with him throughout eternity. And that's the thing. And I just want to read here in 1 John because to me they're just powerful verses. And I was just studying a little bit this morning and felt like I should. In verse 7, chapter 4, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how, and this is how God showed his love among us. This was a decision God made. And this is what it is with us in, in expressing agape love is it's a choice. And we can either choose to or not to. But what God did was choose to send his son as a sacrifice for us. And he goes in, and this is, and this is how God showed his agape love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and send his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so here we have John, you know, you can see the sensitivity, and he goes like this, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives us, and his love is made complete in us. These are, this is a very powerful concept, a very powerful truth that should be evident in every church, among every believer, in every family. Uh, and we were just talking a little bit about how families break down and those kind of things, because this is of primary importance to our God and our Father. And John knew that, and that's why he wrote along those lines. It's just very powerful. And, what, and so what's important for us is to understand this, because it should help us form a biblical understanding and this is another thing, too. I, I want to have a biblical understanding of how to live this life because otherwise my philosophy on living life comes from the world, and quite frankly, I'm a little sick of what the world's philosophy has been as of late, if not since, you know, the time of Adam and Eve. 
that I don't want to live by the world's philosophy. I'd rather live by the truth of the scriptures because that's what I need. Because other than that, then my, then my life just vacillates up and down and shifts with the uh, ever-shifting uh, mentality of a world that's controlled by Satan. And so this is something the Lord wants. And, and to understand his nature, and because of God's very nature, love will never fail us. And we need to read it and understand it uh, so that we're not so consumed with whatever consumes us and keeps us defeated all the time. So here's something. If, if somebody were, And people come up, and I know I've had it happen to me, and I know that you've had it happen to yourself. When somebody comes up who knows the Lord and says, well, I don't think God loves me. And it's because of circumstances, and perhaps it's because of the trials that God is bringing into their lives to mature them, or perhaps it's because they've been sinned against in, in, in egregious ways. And so the question for all of us and the challenges of this is, well, instead of the pat answer, the Sunday school answer, say, well, you know God loves you. I mean, I mean, that, what does that do? Would you know where to turn in Scripture? Would you be bold enough to open up your Bible? Would you know how to help that person? Where in the Bible does it talk about God's love? Would you understand to turn to this right here, 1 John chapter 4, chapter 3? Would you have uh, the wisdom to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and say this, listen, let me define God's love to you. And it's not just some, uh, something that's read at weddings or whatever, but this defines who God is. And would you please listen to me and let me read these to you, these wonderful verses to help you shape and form your thinking so that you understand that even though you might not feel loved, that's a falsehood because you are loved very much. And so that's a question, where would you turn to in the Bible? And we're all responsible for that. And we have people coming up who are hurting. And why not just know 1 Corinthians 13 and turn there, or 1 John chapter 4? And what a wonderful conversation you could have with that individual and pray with them. Um, and so that's it. How would you respond uh, biblically? Uh, where would you turn in scripture? And one of the things, too, when people, and this is another thing that people really struggle with, and this is just kind of where the rubber meets the road, is that they feel like they're always in trouble with God, always in trouble with Christ, you know, because of what they were saying, because of what they were thinking, because of, you know, whatever it might be. And so they're feeling condemned by the Lord. And this is another thing that comes out of 1 John chapter 4, and I'll just read this because, once again, it's powerful. And it says this, I'll just, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. So if God's living in me, which he's in each and every one of us, right? And then he goes on and he says, and so we know and rely on what? The love God has for us. And it says God is love. Now, we've covered that. God is agape. And it goes on and it says this, Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment when we all stand before the beam of seat of Jesus Christ. Guess what we're going to stand on? The finished work of Jesus Christ. And it should give us confidence because that finished work was based on agape love. And we had nothing to do with it. It was all him. That's what it is. You see, that's what agape love does. It sacrifices. I was reading a commentary where it said every time you read that, like uh, uh, sacrifice is kind. It keeps no record along. Sacrifice. It just substitute that word 
uh, love to sacrifice. And it kind of opens up 1 Corinthians 13. It, it, it's just incredible. And he says, we'll have confidence on a day because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love because perfect love drives out what? Fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so the other question is, you know, if you really understand that God is agape love, why are you living in a way that you are afraid of him? Why are you living in a way thinking that you will be punished by our creator? Why, why is that defining you? And really, if you think that way, what you're doing is you're thinking falsely about the character of God. And it's a shame because it takes away the joy of life. It takes away excitement. It, it takes away so much because we feel like we're always being condemned by the Lord. And the thing about that is that that is a lie from the pit of hell. And Satan loves it because he'll just throw it and put it in the mind, plant it in the mind. And before we know, that's what defines who we, how we are and how, how we think. And that's, that's just... And so this idea of punishment or is to pay a penalty. And the same word is used here in Matthew 25, 46. And it says this, then they will go away to eternal punishment. Same word that's used here concerning the fact that because uh, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with what punishment. And here the Lord using the same word here saying that uh, um, then they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous the righteous to eternal life. And so why are we living in the fear of, of condemnation when condemnation will never, ever be a part of our lives, ever, ever again? And sometimes it's a matter of fact, Lord, you know what? I'm feeling this and this and this, but I'm, I'm turning to you and I'm, I'm, I'm making a choice to accept your view of me. Please, Lord, help me to internalize that uh, both spiritually and in my heart and intellectually so that I can start to maybe be set free from the way I've been feeling a lot about myself and others too. And then it, but that's the truth of Scripture. You see, that's what Scripture does for us. Either that or we adopt whatever our philosophy might be or adopt the philosophy of the world. And, and, if, we, and if, if we choose to do that, then, and then what a roller coaster ride that's going to be. You know? And the Lord says, I'm a rock. Stand on my foundation and start to think biblically about how I view you, and you'll find that your life starts to become more of a joy than, 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 and much, much less of a regret. And so that's, that's really what Paul's going here. So when we think about all these things and the thing about the emphasis of 1 Corinthians 13, the emphasis is that God's love will never fail us. God's love is marked by patience, kindness. That's why... It just says that there. It's marked by protection. It's marked by trust and hope and perseverance. All those words come out of 1 Corinthians 13. And verse 8 emphasizes another characteristic. It's in our ever-shifting world, it's a love that will never fail us. It's something that is there for us at all times. Uh, and this is another thing. And think about this, too. God is not your husband. God is not your wife. He is not your church family or a friend. He is God. And we might fail one another, but God will never fail us. And unfortunately, what we do because of our relationships with one another, we start to define God by those relationships. 
wow, he failed me, this person did that, that person did that. I'm never going to go to church again. I'm never going to talk to another believer again. I'll never hire another one of those. Of course, sometimes that's for, <laughs> you know, it's wisdom sometimes not to, but you, hear, you catch what I'm saying. Please do not let how we treat one another. I mean, it takes an effort for us. We, I just want this church to be a loving church. We desperately need it. We're going to fail one another, but God's not going to fail us because his love never fails. So remember what agape love is. It's expressed toward those who do not deserve it. It's not based on merit. And this desire to give of itself for the benefit of the receiver is what really what it's all about. So it's a choice to do so. So I'll just read here too, and it, once again, in, in, um, as we start to move down through this, um, looking at these things, get back into 1 Corinthians. Um, he said there are a number of things that will fail us. He, and I'll just read again, verse 8, love never fails, but there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And this is another thing that I like because the Lord said, you're so limited in your understanding of the eternal perspective. Um, and, and the thing we need to understand is what we are exposed to here is very limited. Uh, and, and he goes on. This is, it, it gives us hope because there's actually hope for us. <laughs> and, and so let's look at this work, word fall. Three, it, the love will never fall or fail. And I have it here. Um, I have it here, back here in point two, and and I just want to, I just want to look at, or do I've already? I guess it's. Do I have it here somewhere? Yeah, it's here in point one, and I and I just want to bring the Greek out a little bit on that. It, it's uh, the the for fall is pipto, and it's interesting because I was thinking like when we had to memorize all these Greek words, and believe me, uh, retention. My retention's about that of a of a of a natural end, right? You know, that's about how much I can retain. <laughs> but when we would memorize these words, tiptoe, tiptoe, and I would often say tiptoe, we tiptoe so we don't fall. And I would go and I'd take the Greek test and I'd always get the word right. Did I have to go there? I don't know if I had to go there. I was just thinking about that. But here we got this word, and it means to cast down from a state of prosperity. It's an interesting way to look at it. This love that never falls, never is it cast down from the state of prosperity, it, to fall from a state of uprightness, to perish, that is, come to an end, to disappear, to cease, of virtues, to lose authority, to no longer have force. And I just love how that word just is fleshed out. And it just brings so much more meaning to that. And I just won't spend a lot of time, but it's something that when it falls, if it fell, it would, you could never bring it back. It was used of a flower or leaf that falls to the ground, withers, and decays. That's what they would use that word for. Um, and the idea is that no time will the love, divine love ever fall, wither, or decay. By its very nature, it's permanent. It's always alive. It's always thriving. And I just love the nuances of the language back then because when they read that, they understood the nuance of the word. And it brought so much more meaning into their understanding of the truth of the scriptures. Oh, God's love will never wither or fall. It won't be like that flower 
that falls to the ground and withers and dries up and it's never, ever going to be alive again. And so they would, just, they, would, they would just understand it in a different way than we do today. And so that's what it is. And, and, and true love is that perfect love that will always protect us and take care of us. And it just says here in verse 10 as we move down through then uh, concerning that. And then he goes on about perfection. So we understand that love never fall, fails. All these other things will pass away. But then what he does is he puts our eyes to the future. And that's Paul. He's very eschatological in his thinking. He's always thinking about the way it's going to be for us. And he goes on and he says, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Does that give you hope? It does for me. I can't wait for perfection. I can't wait for it. And so you see, when we read this, what the Lord is doing for us is saying, you've got to understand that you're living in an imperfect world, but there'll be a time when I'll bring perfection into your life, and you'll be able to see fully, and you'll be able to love the way I want you to love. And so that's what he does for us. So the conclusion we can draw from all this is obviously superiority of God's love but also how our love, if we're not careful, will fall. Will fall. God's won't. And I'm working on, I'm working on making that to be more and more part of my life. I just want to bask in his love. And so here he says in verse 11, and I love these verses. I memorized these early on. Uh, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Wow, that's powerful. I just want to read point two as we look at this. Turn up outlines over. Ah. Uh, God's love is a perfect, constant, and separate part of his character that cannot and does not vacillate toward us. It will not. Our love, on the other hand, fails God, the church, our families, friends, and neighbors in many ways. But we are without excuse. Therefore, we are challenged to make sure that we treat one another with a mature love by putting pettiness, pride, unforgiveness, and selfishness behind us. God wants spiritually mature men and women to be salt and light in the world. He doesn't want spiritually immature, immature boys and girls to represent him in a world in desperate need of a savior. Does that put it in perspective? He wants his kids to grow up. And the area that he really wants us to be strong in among many areas is this area of how we treat one another with his love. And it's amazing how we get ourselves caught up in pettiness and pride and unforgiveness and selfishness. And part of this foundation was how they were treating one another in the, you know, the church of Corinth, right? They had all these gifts and they were abusing the gifts and the ones that were, had the more superior gifts were looking down on the ones who didn't and the whole church was just a mess. And, and basically Paul was telling them, grow up, be men. Be women. Grow up. 
and really that's where he was going here, and that's what he wants us to understand. And yeah, I mean, who wants to be told when you're 60 years old to grow up? But some of us need it. You know, it's interesting if you do a study, whatever, they say that men, <laughs> I don't know if I believe all these studies, they, really, really, they don't really reach maturity until they're like 40 years old. <laughs> a lot of the girls are going, yeah, yeah. And I'll attest to it that maybe it's beyond 40, you know. <laughs> but you think about these things. So here's the question. So look at it this way. I don't care what, at what age we come to know our Lord, right? I've seen people come to Christ in their 80s. But really, the minute they come, believe it or not, the minute they come to know Christ is the, the second they are to leave childhood and enter into adulthood spiritually. And you might not be talking, what are you talking about? I'm 80 and I'm no child. Well, how, how do you treat people? How do you view people? How, do you, how, is, how has your response been? And it's a challenge. And immediately, through the power of the Spirit, God says, now I want you to change how you approach your family and your friends. I want you to grow up. Because we might be 80 or 90, but we're very, very young when in, the, in the scope of eternity. And see, people don't understand that. I say our bodies are wasting away hourly. Do you realize how young our souls are in the scope of eternity? Very young to enter into an eternal existence with him that will go on forever and ever. And we think about these challenges that the Lord brings into our lives. And so he puts it in perspective. And what he does is emphatically challenge us toward maturity in our, our expression of agape love. And to hold in check love's failings is really what he wants us to do. And, that's, and this is why, you know, love falls, it fails. Does ours necessarily have to as believers? And really the challenge here is just hold it in check because if we're not careful, We'll lose grip of it and find ourselves saying things and doing things and be a part of things that are far from the expression of the love that God wants us to express toward one another. And it takes a real choice and it takes a dying to self. And sometimes it takes just going up and just humbling yourself before someone and asking for forgiveness and fighting to think differently about that individual or differently about what has happened in the past so that we can finally get a firm footing to move forward into the future based on what he has done for us and not on all the pettiness and the hurts and the sins of being, being sinned against of the past. And so it's to hold in check love's failings in our present state. Our battle is to move from immaturity to maturity. And, it, and that's why he compares it to being like a child. And it could be, this is interesting too, it could have been referring to that Roman ceremony back then uh, where, the, where a, a, a boy and a girl moved into in the Roman um, uh, culture back then, and where a father would take his son to the forum, and, and the son, he says, now I declare my son to be a man. He's eligible for all the inheritance that I have. And what he does is he changes his toga, which is a toga pratexta, they call it, into a toga virilis. He takes off, and I believe the color was blue or purple or something, I forget the color, and they take that off and they put this white toga on him and he becomes a man. And you know the girls went through the same kind of ceremony 
But what's interesting in that is what they would do is they would take their toys and they would either give them away at that point or burn them. And when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And they say, now I am no longer a child. And it's interesting with the girls because this ceremony went on a little earlier for them, like the age of 13. And the boys, it was sort of like uh, from 15 to 17. But the, you know, so the girls are always mature better than the guys, even at that age. <laughs> but that's what they would do. Isn't that interesting? And so Paul's talking really all to a Roman culture, and they understood it. They got it. Because many of them probably had seen that ceremony at that time. Um, and so when I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. You expect, you know, we can go into this, you expect certain behavior from a three-year-old or a seven-year-old or a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old. You just expect it's just part of growing up. And an 18-year-old is looked upon as strange if their behavior per, per, uh, is like that of a 12-year-old. Um, and a 30-year-old must show a different maturity level than a 16-year-old, and we can just go around up like that. And the challenge is, is for us to basically put the toys behind us, the pettiness and the hurt feelings and things like that, and to start to embrace the, the personhood, the manhood, and the, and the womanhood the Lord has called us into. And really what he's doing is he's exhorting us constantly to mature, be mature in our approach toward one another. It's, a, it's not something, a once-and-done deal. Because we're, I, of course, I'm kind of glad for emotion in some ways, but in other ways, I get really weary of emotion, right? Um, and it's something I, I, I don't know what the emotion's going to be like in heaven. I just hope it's just not going to be part of a fallen nature. I think there's going to be a lot of joy and all kinds of stuff like that. But you see, the thing is, what part of the sin nature is that we have this constant battle not to love. But if we continually depend on the Lord to change it in us, oh, how we reflect his glory toward one another, thinking about it and just wanting to do that. It's a, a decision, like in Colossians 3.10, when it says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. It's an act. And then to think about it, to treat each other poorly is to act like a child in our talking and in our thinking and in our reasoning and to be arrogant in any way because what we've been given by the Lord is to act like a child. And so we think about these things. I like 1 Corinthians, and we'll get in there next, next week, uh, 1420. Brothers, stop thinking like children in regard to evil. Be infants. And it's interesting because he kind of changes that perspective too. But in your thinking, he says, be adults. Be adults. So that's the challenge the Lord gives us. Put these childish things behind us, which is a choice. It's an active state of being, not a passive state of being. This involves an honest assessment of ourselves. It involves repentance. It involves whatever we need to do. And so really, once again, it comes down to the choice. Do I want to act like God wants me to act? Do I want to express his character? Do I want to be seen as someone who's serious about the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their life? Or shall I remain a child? I mean, it's a, it's a black and white issue, isn't it? And 
don't you get bored with the toys? <laughs> I'd rather leave the toys behind because I think that maturity has rich. It's rich in challenge. It's, it's, it's rich. It's, it's always something exciting. It's something that to mature in Christ means that there's just this, this floodgate opens up of the, of the Lord expressing himself through us and what it means for those that, that benefit from the fruit of that. It's rising above whatever that pettiness is, looking at life through the eyes of Christ, and then expressing him in ways that not only bless us, primarily blessing the Lord, but blessing people that come across our path. And, and that's the challenge. The Lord gives us. When we think about love and his love for us and how we treat one another, remember one thing, a characteristic that always perseveres. And that's what God wants from us. And if what God wants is what I want. And I often say that. Lord, what you want is what I want. I don't want what I want. I want what you want. Please, Lord, give me a mind that thinks like yours and a heart that's like yours. And, and help me, Lord, because I need all the help I can get to change in my attitude toward myself and others. Well, he finishes this section out with a note of encouragement. And I'll, and I'll just read verses 12 to 14. He says, ah. he says now we see but a, a poor reflection as in a mirror, and then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall, uh, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's look at point three as we draw down here. It says, God's will in light of the second coming of Christ when we shall finally see him face to face with full understanding is to put on the breastplate of faith and love and the hope of salvation for our helmet so that we may stay mature in him until his love, grace, and mercy bring us home to be with him forever and ever. See, Paul emphasizes in other places in Scripture too. And so here we have this agape love and he gives... This ability, he said, at some point, we'll be able to see clearly. He says, right now, it's a poor reflection. Well, back then, their mirrors were bronze, and they'd polished the bronze. So when you looked into the bronze mirror, it was a poor reflection of yourself. And you'd look at that, and I'm sure some would say, is, is my nose really that big? You know? <laughs> my hair's a mess. Meanwhile, their hair is perfect, right? Tell me that my nose is not that big. Wow. I'm not going to say anything, but, you know. But they just had bronze mirrors. So they didn't, and that's, and that's, so he kind of refers to what was going on there, but a poor reflection. And so we only really see just a little bit. And life in our present state is like that. And also, because we're limited in our understanding of God, we can only partially know him. And so what he does is gives us hope. I want to know. I want to see him face to face. I want my mind, which he'll give all of us, to be unencumbered by all the things that seem to weigh it down. I want to think clearly and be free. And this is the hope that Paul is giving us. And he says, understand that and look forward to it. This is all going to change at the resurrection. It's all going to change, and we'll see him face to face, and we'll know, and we'll know him. Not, we won't be um, all knowing, omniscient, 
that he'll give us that ability as best we can to know. And that's something that we're to look forward to. And this is what he wants us to focus on. And he wants us to focus on, and he just finishes it here, faith, hope, and love. All of these three are very important, but the most important is love. So think about that. Really what he's doing, and if you want to look at it this way, is he's giving us an understanding of how to best approach life. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And that's what we need to focus on. And if we're not, we need to get our priorities straight. And I'll just read in the bottom here, First Thess 5, 8, that since we belong to the day, don't you love that? We belong to the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet of hope of salvation. And then in First Thessalonians 1, 2, he says, we always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continue to remember, uh, we continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the things that the Lord wants us to understand, that love is the most important. And I'll just close with this. Long after everything passes away, love will still be the governing principle in how God interacts with us and in how we will interact with him and with one another. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges, Lord. Well, I thank you, Father, that you don't let us rest on our laurels, so to speak. You're a God who challenges his children. Thank you for challenging us, Father. But this we know, Lord, that without you and without your divine power, without your indwelling Holy Spirit, Without what you've offered us, Lord Jesus, on the cross, we're hopeless. But with you, we have everything. So would you please help us, Lord, to live well for you in the days that we have left? Would you, would you clear away the clutter for us? Would you please help us to be settled in our hearts and in our minds? Would you please offer us stability, Lord, that we walk with confidence, not fearing anything, Lord, because perfect love drives out fear. And that you would just change how we see one another. And that you would really, through the power of your spirit, come upon us afresh and anew. For the world's getting really crazy, Lord, and it's full of hate, and it's angry, and people are killing one another. And Lord, we, would, we don't want to have any part of it. We want to have everything to do with your kingdom. And so, Father, we're desperate for you. And we just thank you, Father, that you have open arms toward us. So I pray, Father, for your blessing on everyone here as we go into another week. Lord, please give us the wisdom we need in, in our interactions with one another. And please keep us strong, Father. And, and, and Lord, just take us by our heads and put our eyes right into focus with your eyes, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that that's what you'll do. This we can say, Lord, we love you very much. And we thank you that you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.